So if you look at precious metal sales the last 10 years, they, in fact, not only the central banks, but overall across the world economy since the last recession, they have just blown up. It's almost as though society is recapitalizing on the old system. We got rid of the gold, we stuck it in coffers, and we issued all this paper stuff. And now the paper stuff's not doing so well, so people in the know, central banks, well-heeled, are going by gold and silver. It's just reversal of the system. And so the people that hold the gold and silver are going to hold the wealth. It's going to be a wealth transfer from people that hold the paper to the people that hold the real asset. This is Kaiser Johnson with Liberty and Finance, and this is the Miles Franklin Weekly Special for March 7th through March 14th, 2023, while supplies last. This week we feature two four nines fine silver coins, 2022 silver maples at $3.40 over spot, and the 2023 silver kangaroo at just $3.39 over spot. Silver maples were the first silver sovereign coins to be minted at four nines fine purity and remain one of the most in-demand coins today. They come 25 to a tube, 500 to a box, and are available at the lowest premium we've seen in more than a year, at just $3.40 over spot. The 2023 Silver Kangaroo from Australia also offers 4 nines fine purity and comes 25 to a tube. However, the Australian Monster Box is just 250 coins, making it the most affordable Monster Box available, especially with a premium of just $3.39 over spot per ounce. Both coins this week are also IRA eligible. And if you'd like to learn more about a precious metals IRA, call us and we'll be happy to help you in that process. To order these specials or any of the many other options we have available, call us at 1-888-81-LIBERTY. That's 1-888-815-4237. We're available after hours and on weekends, and we look forward to speaking with you. Welcome back to Liberty and Finance. We're delighted to have this returning guest. Robert Keens is the founder of goldsilverpros.com. He joins us this Friday, March 10th, 2023. Rob, thanks for joining us here on Liberty and Finance. Hey, Dunnigan, thanks for having me again. You bet. This will be the first time that I personally have interviewed you. My son Elijah has interviewed you every other visit you've made here, although I believe we've been on panels together when we did uh, Miles Franklin Mugs and Medals a long time ago. But at any rate, uh, always grateful for your presence on our channel and on our platform. Our viewers follow your insights because you have such a level head and a far-reaching um, perspective that they appreciate that sort of holistic approach. We have a very current and pressing concern right now about stability in the banking system. Alistair McLeod, former bank director, has warned us about this for years and especially with increasing frequency over the recent quarters and months, talking about the potential not only for illiquidity, which the, the Fed keeps sort of forestalling with uh, record amounts of injection of liquidity on a daily basis, et cetera, but also of insolvency on the parts of banks. We just had this week, in fact, it was finally announced today, Silicon Valley Bank in California having gone uh, been shuttered by the FDIC. So it's been taken into receivership by the FDIC, and they announced some very interesting uh, wording about how uh, – in the depositors are going to be affected by that. We'd like to get into that and what FDIC insurance really means, what it doesn't mean, what having deposits in the bank really means, what it doesn't mean, so people can have a better understanding of the truth and the reality behind the, the real risks, the real and present danger that they're affected by if they're leaving funds in the bank, number one. Number two, uh, we saw a sell-off this week, perhaps in sympathy to that concern about this first bank going bust. Is this the start of a trend, the first domino to fall, et cetera, in that other major banks were selling off, and there were some very interesting analyses talking about uh, selling off of treasury bond holdings at a loss, at great losses by those other banks. Like, why would they do that? 
There's some specific potential and most likely ex explanations for that. We'll get into that as well. And then we'll talk about the gold and silver markets because everybody wants to know what's going on there, and that's your specialty. So could you start us off with uh, this, the failure, the abject failure today of the Silicon Valley Bank, it being taken into receivership by the, by the FDIC, and what that signifies specifically about that bank, but what it more generally signifies about uh, risks that people take on when they participate as depositors in the banking system. Thank you, uh, Dunnigan. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in, in risk advisory uh, type of roles in my corporate career for about 25 years. And so risk is really sort of up my alley. And what a lot of bank managers do and what a lot of companies do is they look at risk. It does not surprise me, first of all, that as a result of this bank failure, that other banks are looking at liquidate, like liquidating some assets. And we can get into that in a moment. Specific to this bank, from what I can tell, they were trying to raise $2 billion to inject some liquidity into the bank to save the bank. They were unable to do that. And they ended up having to go into receivership. And it doesn't surprise me, Dunning, because if you look at the earnings reports from fourth quarter 2022, what was the sector that was suffering the most? It was tech. And so Silicon Valley Bank serving the tech sector with all those layoffs at Amazon and Microsoft and all those other companies. And not only that, there was a statistic that came out last week that there is something like 288,000 jobs uh, in the tech sector, tech sector that had been laid off. Uh, as a result of these earnings reports across the world, two-thirds of that, about 66%, were in the U.S. So the U.S. tech sector is performing doubly as bad as the rest of the world combined. So the tech sector across the world is doing okay. The U.S. tech sector is really suffering. That has a lot to do with competition, but also has a lot to do with the fact the economy is not doing so hot. After years and years and years of this easy money and the ability of companies, including Silicon Valley and the tech companies, to take on additional debt to do things like buy, pay off shares and enrich their wealthiest share owners and do other programs like that, they're no longer able to feed at the easy money trough because the Fed's been raising interest rates. So this is a reverberation through the system of that higher interest rates. And something that you and I were also talking about before we started recording was what is the effect you know, of uh, the market uh, for treasury bonds or any type of debt when you have a rising rate environment? And one thing that you have to remember and that your listeners uh, may not understand if they're not in finance, and it may seem a little bit counterintuitive, is that when interest rates go up, the face value or the resale value of that bond has to go down. That's total yield. Uh, and in that relationship, because the Fed's been raising the benchmark Fed interest rate, that affects interest rates throughout the economy. That makes the existing bondholders less than whole on their investments. They're getting something less than 100% back on their face value. And if the market expects that the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates, they may begin to sell some of those assets to minimize their losses because the losses would mount more and more over time. The face value of those bonds would fall as interest rates continue to rise. And so I think it's a couple of things going on. It is the world market looking at heading into recession, you know, all those factors we can get into. It's looking at trouble in the U.S. economy specifically. It's looking at the lack of liquidity since the Fed has been doing their quantitative tightening programs, not only raising interest rates, but now running some of their existing hold, holdings off the balance sheet. And the effect of the second part of that, selling some of their holdings, actually pushes extra supply into the market when there is less demand because of rising interest rates. So when you rise interest rates and you sell your portfolio at the same time, like the Fed is doing, you're basically pushing down the value of the entire portfolio of available assets, whether it be sovereign assets or corporate assets as well, because those trade, even though they're not the same, if you're an investor and you're going out looking for the highest yield, you want to get into some sort of debt issuance, you're going to look at sovereign, you're going to look at corporate, you may look at muni, something like that, and you're going to look for the best return. And in a rising interest rate environment, people are going to 
you know, sell what's not attractive. And right now, a lot of the bond market in the U.S. is not attractive. All right. So that's a lot. <laughs> Very good summary. Uh, I'm hearing four main points I'd like to dig into. Uh, the first is this idea that when the economy gets sick, the banks catch a cold. Uh, Alistair McLeod has talked to us about that. He says, don't just think that you can go into a recession and have massive layoffs and have zombie companies that are now lo no longer profitable or can't even sustain their zombie walk anymore because of exactly what you just said about the cost of their debt uh, spiking. Uh, that that's going to have a knock-on effect. It's going to cause defaults, both commercial and personal defaults against loans, and that's going to really hurt uh, the bank's balance sheet. So that's number one. Number two is uh, when interest rates go up, bondholders get hurt. And can we talk about who those specific bondholders are, both domestically and internationally, so that if people say, ooh, looks like there's more to come of this, it's not over yet, then let's not be the last ones, let's not get hurt further. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, that's, that's both banks and foreigners. Then thirdly, bank depositor risks, which we are going to get back to about people who think that, quote, unquote, money in the bank is in the bank and it's really theirs. So let's, let's, let's dig into each of those one at a time. So first, this thing, when the economy gets sick, the banks catch a cold. Can you talk to us about why it isn't an isolated incident? Yes, we know that when uh, companies get in trouble and have to do massive layoffs, it hurts those individuals who had jobs. Now they no longer have jobs. That's that's clear. They're good. It's going to hurt their consumer spending, that sort of thing. It's going to hurt the, in their life. There's going to be pain. Some of them are going to lose their homes. We've been through that before. Uh, recessions are painful. But talk to us about how that becomes a systemic problem or a systemic risk when it happens on a large enough scale that it actually is, starts hurting the counterparties as well. Yeah, back in the olden days before we had all this rapid globalization, you know, after the industrial age, we went into this information age, we had a lot of globalization, we have exporting of our labor to other nations, we became the dominant nation state currency. And what happened there was we essentially exported our economy to other economies around the world. So now we're global and now we're intertwined. And if you look at the banking system now done again, it's very incestuous, if you will. Everybody's investing in everyone. And one of the things that you can look at is something called foreign direct investment. When one country is direct uh, investing in or um, a company from one country, one uh, region or domicile is investing in another, they're putting equity into it. So if that receiving country then comes into trouble, it affects the country that's investing. And now multiply that like a giant spider web, everybody to everybody, all different countries investing in everyone. You know, uh, not single point to single point, but like a big web. Everything's connected. What happens is when you tug on one string on that spider web, all the rest of them feel that vibration. If you start breaking that spider web, the rest of the web can break down because it's it's a superstructure dependent upon each of its individual parts. And, yes, you could take a single link and knock it out, and the web may be okay. But if that turns into a contagion where everybody's kind of looking at it, then all of a sudden that web, that structure could fail, and then the web blows away and the spider's got to build a new one, right? That's kind of how the, the, the debt-based banking system is working. And the reason I think that people may think that this is global is because we're hearing bad news out of many economies. We're hearing bad news out of China, hearing bad news out of Europe, certainly. We've been hearing bad news out of Russia and, and Eastern Europe because of the war, and then, of course, you have the United States. And Japan. And that's become a really big issue. And, and one more point I wanted to, to bring to you, something I put on my channel last year. The Bank for International Settlements, or the BIS, tracks zombie companies. And you mentioned zombie companies. A zombie company is basically somewhat defined as either they can't make their debt payments or they can't function because of debt and or lack of income. And so they can go for a while. They're zombies up until – they cannot get new debt 
to take care of the old one. It's kind of like a Ponzi system, if you will, debt based upon debt. When you can't get that next customer giving you debt, when they figure out the game's up, then that whole system collapses. Well, in that BIS report that I put on the channel last year, not only were there a higher percentage worldwide, not only in the U.S., but across the world of uh, companies that were considered zombies by the BIS's criteria, the confidence interval that they had that any of those uh, companies could return to normal operations was the lowest it's been since they've been tracking it. So you're looking at going, not only is the rate of acceleration, or not only do we have more companies, but the rate of acceleration and the chance for them to redeem themselves is going down. And so all of a sudden, now you're thinking about, okay, how do we bail those guys out? And that's why all the laws around bail-ins went in place, I think, in 2012. And we can get into that in a moment as to how it affects your bank account and your individual assets within that banking system. And certainly now, if you own a bank account, you have counterparty risk. Uh, then again, what's that counterparty risk? It's exactly what we're talking about. If Silicon Valley bank tanks and that starts you know, a cascade, then all of a sudden your funds in your bank account can be used to bail that in. That's on federal law right now, can be used to bail that in. And so it presents risk not only to the individual companies, but all companies that may be invested in it, uh, all countries that may be buying that debt, any any that buys that debt, as well as anybody that holds money in a bank that's used as assets. Because once a bank fails, uh, then uh, they're going to start looking at the deposits as an asset, right? And that's an issue because not everybody will be made whole. Everybody's going to take a loss at that point. And so it reverberates around the economy. It's not just the direct investors of that bank. It's anybody that may have held funds or have any business with that bank as well. Let's talk about that on the uh, foreign bondholders of the U.S. Because when uh, Powell keeps increasing, increasing, increasing interest rates, you said mathematically it has to uh, hurt, depress the value of existing bonds. So all of these uh, treasury holders worldwide are sitting on these piles of U.S. treasuries, and they're seeing the actions of the Fed, which now everybody thought maybe he's going to pivot, maybe he's going to taper down, stop doing that. But no, it's it's still marching forward with further increases. So can you talk to us about why uh, foreign bondholders may be equally incentivized, not just these domestic uh, uh, banks trying to get out of their holdings, but foreign investors as well. Yeah, foreign investors really don't like us right now. And, and I did an article recently where I looked at uh, countries that were uh, selling off U.S. treasuries. Japan led the way, I think it was something like $270 billion last year. China was in there. There's a top 10 list of countries that are just simply selling debt. They're not, it's not only that they've stopped buying, they're selling. And that is putting additional pressure on the sovereign U.S. debt market because it forces who – to be the backstop for that. Well, the ultimate backstop is who? The Fed. Well, if the Fed is not buying what everybody else is selling and they're in a quantitative tightening cycle, now you have no buyer of last resort. So without the buyer of last resort, how does that system survive? It becomes a big issue. And that's what everybody knows. As soon as the Fed started tightening, you basically, in this environment with such high debt, historic levels of debt. If you look to debt to GDP, it was at 140%, I think, at one point during the pandemic. Now it's maybe 120, 125 in that range, is still a, at an all-time high, and it's past you know, the, the danger zone. And so what happens is the world sees that and then sees the Fed announce, oh, we're going to tighten, and immediately the wheels start turning in their mind. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, interest rates are going to go up. That's going to affect the bond market. That's going to affect profitability of our current holdings. And if you look at China, for example, and Japan and, and nations like that, which have really supported us over the years in buying our debt issuance, Saudi Arabia, for example – you know, in the, in the, the dollar um, oil trade, all of those countries are starting to look and say, hmm, 
maybe this is not a trade that we want to participate in. And there's one more thing I'll add in there. When NATO and the U.S. took sides against Russia in that war, essentially that pitted NATO and the Western nations against the BRICS nations. So now you have this economic uh, political rivalry going. The problem is the people that we're rivals with happen to be our investors. And so now our investors in the nation aren't too happy with us right now. So that, it's just a perception problem right now, but I think it's manifesting in the financial markets. As well, well. I, I believe it's more than a perception problem. It's, it's basically putting sanctions against those who have been supporting you. So that's exactly. biting, the, biting the hand that feeds you, essentially. And it, I skipped over, and I shouldn't have, uh, if you could focus just a little bit longer, because to this week we've seen a, a sell-off of major big-name American uh, banks, uh, not directly related to the SBC uh, failure, but – uh, the the uh, commentary that's come out on that, we'll try to get a link and put it in the description of this video so people can look up that further, is that these major U.S. banks have been selling huge amounts this week of U.S. treasuries at a loss. And you mentioned why their treasuries would be down uh, because of the raising interest rate environment. Uh, you'd think normally any holder of an asset would prefer to hold that longer until it gets a chance to recover uh, to to be in the green, be above water before you sell something, but to sell something at, knowingly at a loss when you're underwater in that investment uh, was theorized to be either one of two things, and you said perhaps both when we were talking. That is, either uh, they see ahead, they go, oh my gosh, there's going to be more of the same. In other words, let's not wait longer here for the uh, Fed to reverse course and drop interest rates so that the values of our bonds will recover so that we can sell them in the future. It's like, no, forget it. Let's dump these things now before it gets worse. And secondly, if they are actually acting out of desperation to raise liquidity to, to uh, bail out their own solvency problems that are not acknowledged, oh, everything's fine, everything's fine. But meanwhile, yeah, we're, we're, we're liquidating assets at a loss uh, that are supposedly the, you know, U.S. Treasuries, that's supposed to be the most solid, most liquid uh, asset you can hold on to outside of real assets. But anyway, so can you talk to us about uh, what might be driving these major banks to sell off their bond port U.S. Treasuries at a loss this week? Yeah, if you go back to a point we had earlier about the easy money era since 2008, the last financial crisis, we started this thing called QE or quantitative easing. And it's this ridiculous term that basically means we're going to issue a lot of debt and print a bunch of money. But we got to give it a fancy name so it seems technical, like the technocrats really know what's going on. But essentially what's happening is with all this QE, we just shoved this bazooka of money and debt into the system. And at some point, that system has to fail. And essentially what's happening is we got to the point at which we issued more debt in the system and it wasn't growing the economy. We started contracting. We started having negative earnings reports. And last year, we had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, but nobody wanted to call a recession. And the White House says, no, let's don't call a recession employment's okay. And we can talk about employment later and the, and the farce that that is. But in any case, nobody wants to admit the recession because I think that this is what they know. They know that the system is in trouble. Uh, and this has been played out before. I feel like I'm in the Matrix movie. You know, how many times have we gone through this and how many cycles do we have to go through? Essentially, the, everybody knows with the rising interest rate environment, they're not, the U.S. is not going to be able to maintain their stance towards repaying their debt. And I think as far as the individual banks go, the banks look at the Fed to see what they're doing. The Fed in this system, in this centralized monetary system, where we have the central bank, the central bank controls, you know, the, the Fed funds rate, which hits the real estate market, hits a lot of markets through different mechanisms. You know, different uh, treasury issuances will affect di uh, different of the markets here in the U.S. 
And so what's happening is a lot of markets are selling off. There's been pressure on real estate as well. There's been pressure on a lot of assets. And I think the world is looking at it going, we need to liquidate assets because no longer do we have, like I said, that next batch of debt to pay off the other one at a lower rate. We have that next batch of debt to pay off the older one at a higher rate. That's not favorable to our business. And so we've gotten to the point in which you can't get the easy money anymore. Well, when you don't have the easy money coming from the Fed, what do you turn to? Like, for example, if, if you're working and you lose your job, but you got to pay the bills, what do you do? You start selling stuff. You go to eBay. You sell your car. You may sell your house. You know, you got to do what you got to do to liquidate. And so a lot of these banks are looking at going, okay, I'm not going to be able to take on additional debt. And companies, too. I think this is coming for companies, too, uh, Dunnigan. So banks are saying, I'm not going to get that easy debt. We're in a rising interest rate environment. The value of my existing uh, uh, holdings that I have for other people, remember, everybody's investing everybody else is basically it's going down. We know that we're going towards a recession. Everybody's saying it, you know, yield curve inversion, all of those things. So what are you going to do? If you have an asset and you're out of a job and you've got to pay the bills, you got to pay the rent at the end of the month, you owe a thousand bucks and you have say a really nice iPhone that you want to sell. You're not going to wait to the end of the month because what if it's worth less? You're going to sell now. You're going to liquidate as much as you can. So you can pay that bill and you can stay in your home or your apartment, for example. That's what the banks are doing. They're selling off assets so that they can maintain operations so they don't go under because they know that the Fed right now is not backstopping that system. And that's essentially what's happening. And I think this is going to come to corporations next. A lot of these companies, if you look at the earnings reports for fourth quarter 2022, out of the S&P, I think almost two-thirds of companies were profitable. One-third were not. One-third had a loss. But that one-third drug the other two-thirds into negative territory. So net-net in quarter four 2022 and the S&P 500, the broad you know, 500 largest companies in the U.S., we actually had a retraction in growth, even though two-thirds of them were profitable because the losses that we had in that one-third were so big that they overwhelmed the gains in the other two-thirds. And that points to serious problems in the economy. And what was the biggest sector that got hit? Well, finance. Finance took the biggest hit in the fourth quarter earnings reports. And what we're going to start seeing in the next couple of months for those companies who haven't done this as they you know, go through their compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley and other things are to start getting year-end reports. And we're going to start seeing you know, January to December 2022 how companies did. And a lot of that is starting to come out negative as well. And it, but it got worse in fourth quarter. So what we see is it was okay the first half of last year. Then it started sliding down. Then fourth quarter was kind of the worst. And then the question is, what about the first quarter of this year? Is the first quarter of 2023 going to be good enough to kind of save that system? I don't think so based upon what we're seeing in the economy. So it could be that we are on sort of a slow slide down until we reach some sort of inflection point. That inflection point in the economy is when the Fed would have to make a decision to pivot from tightening to then easing because if they don't they could you know they're worried about a crash i think and i think that's done again why they've been raising interest rates i think they know because if you look at the imf and the studies that they have done and these papers have been out for years they know that you when you go into a recession any central bank throughout history has to have at least five to six full interest rate points a positive above zero that they can then reduce and inject money back into the economy to get it started again. Well, what's the Fed's target? Five to 5.25. They're hitting the IMF's target. They know what's coming. That, that's the single statistic that tells you they know what's coming. They're trying to get to that IMF threshold. They know the recession's coming so that they can then ease. But you can't ease too quickly. And along the way, you're going to have these, uh, these banks and companies that are going to go out because – they were in the weaker position, and the Fed knows this. They know that part of the economy is going to suffer in the tightening. 
what the Fed is thinking is we're going to stop the Titanic from sinking, right? So we're going to have to sacrifice some stuff. We're going to throw the furniture off and kind of, you know, try to save it. I don't think they're going to be able to, but I think that's what the Fed's plan is. Now, you've just described how individual households can be impacted in a rising interest rate environment when they're already teetering on the fragile edge of of uh, insolvency. You've talked about how that can affect banks as well, how that can affect bondholders, uh, you know, in the in the treasury. What about depositors, people who've been trying to be conservative, trying to be responsible, you know, keeping their money, quote unquote, money in the bank? Uh, are they out of harm's way? Why or why not? Well, with the financialization economy, it changed for savers. When we financialized the economy, no longer was it profitable to save. In fact, with the, when the dollar came out in 1913, you just start the clock on depreciating currency. So if you're a saver from 1913 on, you lost value. And I think the popular statistic is we're somewhere at 98% of lost value in the original value of the dollar, which is a re reflected in gold. And that's why we invest in gold because it, it, it saves that for us. The money that we're able to save, it holds purchasing power over time. So no longer have savers been able to save and have that money be as valuable when they need it later on than when they put the money in the bank. And what is that? It's a tax on labor because how do you earn money? You do something. For me, I do research and digital media and other things. Other people may you know, build cars. Other people may be plumbers. Other people may you know, own a grocery store. But when you the money that you make from your business or from your occupation you put in the bank, that's your that's your stored labor. That's the excess of value you created in the system as a contributor that now you're putting into a bank for safekeeping. But when you have a declining dollar, the value of your savings is going down essentially. And so we're at the point in which savers can no longer retire. And you look at the baby boomers, a lot of them can't retire and they're staying in the workforce and it's causing job issues with the new generation. We have this this jam up where we can't get older workers out and retired and so newer workers are coming in and it's a jam up and there's not enough jobs for everybody. And this is going to make that situation worse with the household essentially. Well, in addition to the purchasing power destruction of our savings, so whatever dollar value it says on your bank statements, those dollars aren't going to buy you as much this year as they did two years, five years, ten years ago. A buck ain't worth what it used to be is the saying. But there's more There's more than that. It's worse. But wait, there's more. It's worse than that because uh, – you may have your access to those funds cut off. Those banks may have to bail them in to keep their own uh, solvency along. And that says, no, 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 that's my money. I put that in the bank. It's my money. Mm -hmm. True or false? It's false because if you look at the loss in the banking system, which started changing during the 90s, they did a bunch of things. They basically turned a bank account into like a holding account, and it's in a trust-type relationship. And what does that mean? When you have a trust uh, relationship, you have a trustor and a trustee. Okay, and those two roles are one person manages the assets, one person is the what they call beneficial owner. So instead of me now owning this dollar, I'm giving it to the bank. They're lending it out to go make money, and then I'm the beneficial owner. I no longer own that dollar. It's their asset. So, so when the bank says my asset is your deposit, it means I own your money. It's my asset legally. That legal term asset means ownership. So it's now the bank's ownership, and you're the beneficial owner. There's a, the liability is your value in the bank account. You become a liability on the bank's balance sheets. And so what, the way the laws were amended in 2012 and starting back in 1990, but you know, culminating the bail-in laws in 2012, now let's say you have money in the bank. Let's say the Silicon Valley Bank goes under. You, you know, If that Silicon Valley Bank obviously does not have enough money to secure your deposits, it's going bankrupt. right? If it did, then it, then it wouldn't. And so now you go into the situation where – you have a claim on what you thought was your money in the bank, but it's their asset, and you become a, a, an unsecured creditor on the books of that bank. 
where you're a liability to them to pay you back money you thought was yours. And in a situation where they're going bankrupt, it now goes into an official proceeding in which the court system is now going to decide who gets what. To some extent in that situation, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has some guarantees, quote-unquote guarantees, up to $250,000 per individual. The problem is, and that can make some people whole, the problem is they don't have enough money to make everybody whole. Now, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, there's probably enough money in the system to handle that bank failure if the FDIC you know, wants to, according to its rules, just you know, make those guys whole, and they can. But if you look at the FDIC overall and the banking system overall, they only hold about – and it fluctuates up and down of this, this percentage, but the percentage is around 1% or 1.2% of insurance money to cover the banking system. So let's say, just for example, the entire banking system shut down overnight. Only 1% of people could be made whole. That's a 99% reduction. And further, they're going to pick and choose the winners, and we have evidence that we can talk about in a recent video, but they have the FDIC has the ability to pick and choose the winners. That's the way the laws are written. So when you put money into a stock market account or a bank account and it becomes their asset, that means you no longer own it. Okay, you're the liability, but you're unsecured, meaning there's no guarantee they're going to pay you. And mo I think most bond covenants are written such the bondholders are going to get paid before shareholders or before account holders. So the first people to get their money back are usually the bondholders. Now, if Silicon Valley Bank couldn't raise enough money you know, to pay off that debt, what does that leave for depositors? Not a whole heck of a lot. In fact, the press release that came out from the FDIC that this morning taking over receivership of Silicon Valley Bank said that they hope to be able to restore uh, depositors' access uh, who are below the FDIC insurance threshold, perhaps perhaps by Monday of the coming week. But those who have deposits in excess of that will be likely to receive certificates, whatever that means. Uh, so even in this first instance, uh, sounds like uh, not everybody's going to be made whole based on what's already coming out as a preliminary. Uh, uh, communication from the FDIC. We saw a supposedly leaked video from an FDIC meeting uh, about a month ago. We will put a link to that in the description of this video as well, where there's explicit discussions within that room of we need the public to have a high level of trust in the system, higher than those in this room have. And when when we have when we have banks getting into trouble, we need to not communicate that equally to all parties because we don't want to. Uh, have uh, you know hesitancy on the part of uh, trust of the on the part of the, the public because we don't want to have unintended consequences of bank runs. In other words, people wanting to get in there and say, "Give me what's mine," uh, before they're at the end of the line and being told you're going to wait forever, as you just outlined. Uh, can you talk to us about what was revealed uh, that was very uncomfortable to hear in that leaked FDIC video and what it means for ordinary depositors? Yeah, in that FDIC video, it's an, obviously an internal video that was meant for for people with the FDIC and their partners because it. You could just tell uh, how it was presented, <clears throat> the framing and everything. This was not meant for public consumption. It was just a recording that somebody leaked. We don't know who necessarily. But in that conversation, they basically said very explicitly, we know the crash is coming. And I'm paraphrasing, but they, this is what they said. We know the crash is coming. What do we do? Do we tell people? And immediately, right off the bat, everybody said no. And the reasoning was, yeah, the system's probably going to have major issues, may even go down. But if we tell people now, it goes down now. As soon as you tell people the system's going down, they're going to withdraw their money. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, why are banks selling their debt now at a loss? They're trying to get their money before the big one because when the big one comes, those bonds are going to devalue and those assets are going to devalue even more. And so what's happening is 
companies are aware of this and they're able to get rid of some of their assets. People, however, that are not following this every day, they're going about their lives, you know, they're doing what we do. Then again, they're raising their families, they're working, they're just trying to get along. They're not privy to this information that the FDIC knows and that large corporations know. They don't have that benefit. And so what happens to individuals is they get really affected more. And going back to your earlier point about the banking system and certificates, if you look at the trust relationship, um, <clears throat> there is a concept around eminent domain. And eminent domain is, is typically defined in real estate cases, meaning somebody can't put an easement on your land or can't take your land without giving you equal value. So, for example, in the early days of building the railroad, you know, they had to pay landholders money so they could run the railroad through. And even today, uh, you can have easements from public utilities that can go on your land. That's all through either eminent domain laws or similar laws. And so what happens is eminent domain can also, because it's not defined, the Constitution is only real estate. It's It can be anything. And so the government can use eminent domain to sub, su substitute or pay you for your loss with something else. What are they going to do? Bank shares. Well, if the bank goes and solve it, what's that bank share worth? That's the essence of the bail-in system. They take the real asset and give you, you know, you become a bag holder for something that's not as valuable. Now, Dunnick, if I took one of those certificates from Silicon Valley Bank out to the market and said, I'm, I'm going to go eBay my certificate, is anybody going to bid on that? No, you're not going to get any bids. I mean, you may find a greater fool. There aren't going to be a whole lot of them out there. Now, right now, this is a singular bank failure. So this is something they can contain, right? This is something they can wrap, you know, a, a box around it. But the issues that affected that bank don't go away. They're treating the symptoms. They're dealing with that issue. They're not dealing with the underlying problems that are going to start causing this issue elsewhere, and not only in the United States, but around the world. And so this is a warning. You know, I often say on your program, you know, the dashboard's flashing red. The dashboard in the debt system is flashing red. We, you know, if you have debt in the system or if you have money locked away in one of these uh, trust-type accounts like a, like a bank account, stock account, 401K – it, it may behoove you to start looking at the risk around that and making some decisions. And I'm not a based financial advisor. I'm not, I can't tell anybody what to do, but just look at the risk of the system and determine if that risk is more or less than what you're willing to take. If the risk of any investment or anything that you own, whether it be a bond or a business or a piece of real estate or whatever, any asset that you own, if the risk of that asset seems more than you're willing to take for the return on that asset and talk about falling returns – you could have a risk level where that, that it was okay to hold that asset, but now you're looking at, say, the risk levels up and the asset values going down. They're both going the opposite way. I need to get out of Dodge. And so I think what other uh, banks are doing right now in, in getting rid of some of their assets is something – or I should say selling their assets for liquidity may be something that people want to do as well if they feel that's appropriate. So I would say everybody right now watching this video, as soon as it's over – Take a few moments when you have time, review your portfolio, look at where you may have risk, and start thinking about some decisions you can make to make yourself more safe, more liquid in case you lose your job or something like that happens. If companies start laying off like they have in the tech sector and that spreads, other people are going to lose jobs. You may want to start thinking about what assets you can liquidate to kind of help you, you know, remain whole and, and, and solvent through this, much like the banking system is trying to do right now. Another thing that makes this uh, very difficult for the ordinary person to do is it's not necessarily easy to assess the risk. You said you gave the sterling advice there, go take a look at where your holdings are and assess the risk. It's like, how in the heck is an ordinary person supposed to be able to do that? My wife and I and our viewers, some of them have heard this story before, but I'm going to do it again in short form. We had 
got burnt with the tech collapse into the dot com collapse in 2000 we got burnt again in 2007 we said okay fine we're not going to be subject to the stock market uh, fluctuations anymore we took all of our holdings that were in our brokerage account and put them into this money market account we had been in and it's, it you look at the prospectus and it says one to two day access to your funds it's like a it's like a cash equivalent. It's supposed to maintain one dollar par value, and you get two percent interest, which is better than the zero point nothing percent interest you could have got in an FDIC insured uh, portion of the fund. So there we were, money market. We're out of the stock market. We're in the money market. So we don't worry. We don't sweat it anymore when we get home and they say, "Oh, the stock market dropped five hundred points today." But that doesn't matter. Haha, we're in a money market fund. Then the global financial collapse of two thousand eight happened, and we got a nice little letter from our brokerage fund, which is TD Ameritrade, and it said, "Until further notice." Your access to your funds in your account will be suspended. And we thought, no, that doesn't make sense. Called them up and they, we said, no, 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 we're in a, we're in a cash equivalent money market fund. It has one to two day access to the funds. And they said, yeah, but that fund that you were investing in, the reserve money market fund, on the back end was invested in other things like that higher risk, like Lehman Brothers. And Lehman Brothers was collapsed and therefore your fund, the reserve fund, with collaterally damage you, you. The money isn't there anymore, and uh, you'll at some point in the future you'll you'll be able to get parts of it back or whatever. So they started over a period of months emailing us. Okay, now you have 50% more access to your funds. Okay, now you have 20% more. We never got back all of the funds, and every year they call us up and say, "Is there hey, is there anything we can do for you?" We said, "Yeah, give me my money back," and they said, "Well, is there anything else we could do for you?" So um, that idea of assessing your risk. You know, I've I've got my money in a savings account. That's the safe, right? Or I've got my money in a in a in a treasury, or I've got my money in a money market uh, fund that says one day. It says right there, one day access to my funds. Uh, why is it that people may not be able to know really the true risk that their uh, funds are at because they think it's their money still? As you pointed out earlier, that's that's point number one. You already made that point. It's no longer your money. You've loaned it to the bank or to the fund. They're doing with it what they will. And uh, you don't have necessarily uh, visibility or control over that. So anyway, just underscoring that from painful personal experience, it may be difficult for an ordinary person to even realize the elevated risk they're under when they think they're doing a very safe and conservative thing. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make. It is hard for the everyday person to know, especially when you've trusted the banking system for so long. Because the United States went through this boom in this economic just juggernaut for so long that everybody took it for granted. Everybody thought we can put our money in the bank. It's always going to get better. Specific to money market accounts, um, what they did in the 90s is they said, we're going to develop a concept called a sweep account. And a sweep account is a sub account of your bank account. So you put money in your bank account. You think it goes into a money market. It's all safe. They sweep it electronically without telling you into sub accounts. Those sub accounts then get invested. And guess what? The requirements for liquidity are almost zero, so it's actually less than the requirements for liquidity to back up your bank account. I think it was a one to nine fractional reserve ratio at some point where 10% of your money that you you saved would be there in the cash till or in the vault for the bank to handle anybody that had that needed to get cash out of the bank. The other eight-ninths of that went into the system and created money for other people. That's basically a Ponzi system because if those other eight dollars don't come fully back what happens to your account and when you sweep that into a sub account a hidden sub account which is legal by the way this is put into law but it's hidden from you then and it has almost no reserve 
for it, then if and they're investing in the same thing. So it's just a a more riskier version of a bank account. And what they would do, what the banks would do is they'd have this little fine print when you signed up that said, oh, by the way, we can put it into sweep accounts, blah, 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 blah. Nobody knows what that meant. Who the hell knows what a sweep account is? Nobody knows. And so they were using technical language and they were using technical concepts the average person didn't understand. And it's just obfuscation. It's just saying it's the appearance of safety when in the background all these laws had been written the last 30 or so years. That took the safety away. It encouraged risk-taking. Why? Well, think about what happened in the 90s. It was booming. Our economy's booming. Everything's going great. We're feeling good. We just got off the 80s, the fall of the wall. You know, the, the U.S. Is, is doing great. Economy's doing great. Hadn't had a great recession in a while. There's a lot of euphoria. And so the banking system decided, well, let's take on more risk. Let's make some more money. And there were promises made done again to pensions and 401k holders and bank account holders that are now being reneged on. And it's going to become more and more and more because if we start having more collapses in these risk assets, that means the money left available to make people whole in supposedly safe investments is no longer there. Now, if we were in the old system and you put a dollar in and they had to hold it and couldn't invest it and you just paid a fee, that was the old banking system before the central banking system. Let's say you put your money into a bank, you put a thousand equivalent of a thousand dollars in there. And they said, okay, that's going to be, you know, um, I don't know, half a percent a year to hold and service your account. You'd gladly do that. It's like, okay, I'll have, what is it, $995 left or $990 left. I'll do that for the safety of me not having it and potentially being robbed and so on and so forth. You definitely would do that. It's a service. Who wouldn't pay for that service? When I go get my car washed, I don't expect them to do it for free. I pay them for the service. So banks back then were providing a service, and they made money off of fees, not off of investing. Well, now the banking system makes most of their money off investing, okay? And so they're going to put it into high risk because they want the money, okay? That's the only way it could work. If they're paying you X, say, you, say you're lucky and you get 1% on your bank account, they've got to make at least two or four or six. It encourages risk tanking, and it's that law which kind of mer took away the disconnection between the commercial and retail side and smushed them together. They said, oh, retail funds. Put it on our commercial side and go invest, but don't let people know that we're doing that or put it in the fine print so they don't understand. When we interviewed uh, James Rawls, who's the founder of survivalblog.com, he talks about we're living in the age of deception and betrayal. You mentioned earlier, this is, a, this is an example of that, is this deception, this sleight of hand that either banks or brokerages are doing to have these sweep accounts and so on, investing on the backside. It stands to reason that, that if you really think about it, that they have to do that, they have to, they have to make a higher payout than what they're giving you to, to make a business model. But the fact that you're therefore subject to higher risks than you ever are aware of is something that's not at all obvious. What about the other thing about deception in the employment figures? You mentioned that earlier. I'd like to circle back on that because we've, you've touched on a couple times here that falling employment, in other words, massive layoffs from tech companies, et cetera, definitely are going to have a real impact, not only on those people's lives and on the companies who are laying them off, but on the banks who loan to those companies and the banks who loan to those individuals. And then if that those banks get under stress, it can affect all of us, et cetera. Uh, why is it so important for us to know the truth about the true employment situation? And what are we being told and what's the reality? Okay, so employment, uh, consumers are 72% of the economy. So if consumer spending goes down, that affects 72% of the economy. Almost three quarters. The consumer is the economy. We're a consumer economy in the U.S., Job. That's why when the non-farm payrolls come out, like like it it does usually the first Friday of every month. This month it came out today, the, the second Friday, because it was a short uh, short week uh, on the first Friday. So they gave it another week. It came out, 
and it comes out rosy. And, and in January, it came out rosy. And I'm looking at the numbers going, hmm, that doesn't jive with all the, the earnings reports we're getting and the announcements of layoffs. And so when you went into the BLS report, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, part of the government that provides the non-farm payroll information, you began to see that, oh, the reason we got that big jump in January jobs, of, I think it was 511,000, wasn't because we actually created 511,000 jobs, Dunnigan. It's because they said, you know what? One survey saying that the BLS runs two surveys, household and basically commercial. And they look at them and there was a difference. And the household was much worse. But the household was more accurate because it actually comes from households, and the households report what jobs they have. On the payroll side for commercial, they report payrolls, but the BLS doesn't know where people may be working two jobs. It doesn't know the headcount, and it doesn't know the quality of the jobs. So, and, and so there was a difference for a long time, and they were being criticized because you could tell the difference. And then you could look at something like labor force participation rate, which is something else that the government tracks. And that is a more raw number, one that's not finagled with as much, played around with as much. And it's simply a measure of how many able-bodied adults do we have that want to work and how many are working. And then again, that hasn't even come back up to uh, pre-Great Recession standards. So for the last 13 years, we've actually lost overall employment in the United States. And so what happened was the BLS said, we've got all these issues. People are starting to notice it. So – they, for January, they went back and said, we're going to take this difference in numbers and we're going to make a match and we're just going to do a blanket, just redo the numbers so our surveys don't disagree with each other. And that's where most of the 511,000 jobs came from. They just made them up out of thin air. And it's not a positive report. And not only that, but if you look at how the BLS calculates their numbers, it's, it's not a population of jobs. They're looking at samples. And as a former auditor, I used to do sample sampling all the time. I'm looking at a population of things, and I want to know, you know, is, is it, do we have effective control around that? Is it real? Is it right? You take a representative sample, but the sampling methodology for the BLS, I would say, doesn't really follow best practices. There are a lot of goofy stuff going on in there to make it, you know, what, however they feel. But I look at their sample methodology, I'm like, nah, scratch, scratch, scratch. That That's not the the statistical math in which sampling methodology is built on. When I was in the big four and auditing, you know, financial statements and technical controls and things like that, our methodology was built on statistics and PhD level statistics on, on sampling. The BLS uses their own sort of uh, bastardized version of that. And so it's led to all of these issues. And so we've had a much rosier employment picture than it really is. And I think the reality is starting to, to reach people because people can see on the street you're saying we created 511,000 jobs, but everybody I know is working two part-time jobs to make ends meet, and they, they're not able to pay their rent. And, and my friend Joey over here got laid off. Reality is not vibing with what you're telling me. And the last part of that is, is the part-time jobs. The BLS job surveys do not delineate on the top-line numbers between part and full-time. So if you have a part-time job, you're considered as a job holder, but you may be making a fraction of what you did. And so what happens is now people are working two and three part-time jobs to make do of what they made with a full-time job. And guess what? The BLS counts all three of those jobs as differently uh, employed people because, remember, the household survey is where they got the people count, not the, uh, not the payroll survey. And so all they did was say instead of uh, uh, adjusting the payroll survey to where you had uh, one person on multiple jobs and reducing the amount of overall job holders – they went the opposite way and just, you know, and covered over it. And the reason they're doing that is because the system is going to crash. If you go back to the FDIC, the FDIC doesn't want to tell and panic people. Neither does the BLS. The government right now is just trying to prevent 
people from panicking and melting down. And if you go back to my favorite movie I watch every year, Christmas Eve, It's a Wonderful Life, the movie tells the story. What happened? There was a run on that bank, and they didn't have any money. And uh, they had to only give out a little bit of money, keep that bank solvent till 6 p.m. till they closed their doors. And if they had lost one or two more dollars, that bank goes under. You know, that's how that system works. The money's taken in, but it's lent out. It's not there. And when people need to go get it and they can't get it, that's when the bank goes insolvent. And that's what's happening. More people are unemployed. They need their money. There's withdrawals taken out. They don't have the money to pay the withdrawals. It's in risky assets. They're trading below the value that they invested in. The whole system basically is in a mess. And when, when the bank runs will come is when the greater public figures this out. When you have a certain amount of people that figure this out and they panic and they start talking and networking via social media and calling each other, it's going to be bank run time. And that's when you're going to have major issues. And I think we're getting closer to that point because the more that people see these, these banks fail, the more that they're going to want to go get their money. You've mentioned uh, several times how there's a disparity. There's this uh, food chain of who gets the information first and who gets it last. Andy Schechtman, the CEO of Miles Franklin, who we have interviewed on here several times, uh, talks about the first textbook, the first page of his first day of economics class in college. And that was it said the little man rule. And that the little man, by the time the little man uh, finds out, He's going to lose because the uh, more informed players will have already positioned themselves ahead of the warning. Also, we've interviewed uh, Brad Harris from Full Spectrum Survival, and he says the official warning will always come too late. So what you're talking about is this delay, intentionally, intentionally delayed awakening of the sleepwalking masses so that the elite and the well-heeled and the well-informed can make their graceful exit out the very narrow exit door and in my view, it's like, you know, the casino is on fire, but we're not going to tell anybody. Let's get the rich, uh, the high rollers out the door into the gold limousines that are taking people away to safety, to safe harbor. And then when it can no longer be denied anymore and you've got all the all the big high rollers out and, and well taken care of, then you can let the masses know because, and then, oh, dear, oh, dear, why, why didn't anybody tell us about this? It's like, well, we couldn't have foreseen this. It was it was just a surprise thing that happened because of some ex excuse. So, uh that what is the exit, the the flight to safety? We've been told that over the last four years, like central banks of the world and some of the largest uh, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, have been acquiring, for example, gold at a higher rate than they have for the previous. In fact, the last four years, they've acquired more than they had in the previous 60 years, something to that effect. Maybe you can let us know. So why? what is it that's, that's about this uh, flight to safety that the well-informed are taking action on? while the rest of us are being told nothing <laughs> by the FDIC. Let, let's keep the faith of the ordinary people as long as we can. Yeah. The flight to safety over a big crisis has always been gold. Now, until the system busts, people are going to tell you the dominant currency, which is the dollar or the bonds, safety, right? That's really – the bonds and dollar are part of the same debt system. And to keep people in the system, they have to say, well, this is the safest asset. We've got to get rid of gold. It's a barbarous relic. So they outlaw ownership in the 1930s. Uh, they melt a bunch of it down. They sell it off. All of that kind of stuff. No longer have gold ownership. Take silver out of the money in, in, in the 60s, and there you go. People don't have it. And so what they have are base metals, and they have paper promises. And then the rich get the gold and the silver. Silver, a lot of it's used for industry, but some of it's held in savings as well, and a lot of gold's held in savings. And that concentration of wealth helps the elites. And very much so, this is a, a, an intentional system. If you look, going back to pop culture again, look at the movie Titanic. What happens when the Titanic sinks? The rich get out first. And there's like a lottery of sort of makeshift lottery of sorts of the poorer people and how they can get out. 
And a lot of them end up dying. Why? Because the rich paid more and because, you know, they were considered society's elite. And this always happens. This has been throughout history. This has been the pattern. The elites develop the system. You're basically farming the labor. You're harvesting the labor of the people. You're putting a system around it so that they don't know that they're in a slavery system. And then when it, when they figure out they're in a slavery system, the elites are out the back door. You're still in shackles. The, the tsunami's coming. What do you do? And yes, yeah, so that's why you watch channels like yours because you guys have been talking about this for a long time. What do we do in a case where we have a panic or a crisis? And not just a financial panic, but other types of panics as well. And it, you know, every religion on the planet talks about being prepared. It talks about what do you do on a daily basis to prepare yourself for the lean time. So you're going to have seven years of plenty. You're going to have seven years of, uh, of recession, of famine, if you will. Well, whether you, you're Christian or religious or not, every religion talks about that. Why? Because over time, that's what's happened. And a religion is a collection of stories telling about what? History. It's history repeating itself again. It's just glossier. We just have a glossier finish to the same damn system as before. And not only that, they made it more complicated. And not only that, they made it easier for themselves to do it. If you get into central bank digital currencies, they're just going to push a button to do it. And it gets even easier. And that's the nasty system they want to put after this one because they're not done yet. They're going to crash the system. They're going to put central bank digital currency. They're going to do it all over again. But every time they do it, they make it easier. And uh, I hope that the people of the world are starting to figure this out. I hope you know we're listening to our parents. We're listening to our culture, our story. Then again, stories are the way that we pass down knowledge. Wisdom. Uh, not only in movies, but in books. And we teach our children, and we talk about fairy tales. What are fairy tales? It's warnings about the bad stuff that goes on and how to prepare yourself. The Big Bad Wolf and Little Red Riding Hood. That's what all of this is about. So listen to your culture. Listen to your stories. Go talk to your parents and your grandparents. They'll tell you. My, my parents grew up during the Great Depression. My father fought in World War II. He landed on Normandy Beach in D-Day. They told me stories. And so I, I, I was very lucky that that happened, that I've always kind of been that person that looked at the system with a little bit of pessimism and hesitation and didn't just accept it. And that's kind of allowed me maybe to see things before other people. But I would say, you know, if you're just waking up to this, you're just seeing this video, please go talk to people of previous generations and talk to them about what they went through and how it happened. And you're, when you get them talking about it, you're going to find out this has happened before. Like I said, we're in the matrix. And this is not the first time it's happened. It may have been the 50th or 100th time it's happened. Yeah, there's nothing new under the sun, and we are doomed to be victims of the recurrence of history if we don't know it. And you're right. I remember stories told to me by my mom about her dad uh, during the Great Depression and, and uh, her anger at the banks that were repossessing people's farms, et cetera, that sort of thing. Um, so you're a person who does tend to look for patterns in the markets. You look not just at what's happening today on a daily basis, but what that rhymes with, how that mirrors things that we've seen before. And can you tell us what you're seeing right now in the gold and silver markets? We've talked at some length about the treasuries, the employment, the economies, earnings, and interest rates, all that. But we haven't touched on what's going on in the gold and silver markets. Based on what's happened before in history, what we're seeing now, how does that inform you as an analyst with that eye to what's ahead? So if you look at precious metal sales the last 10 years, they, in fact, not only the central banks, but overall across the world economy since the last recession, they have just blown up. It's almost as though society is recapitalizing on the old system. We got rid of the gold, we stuck it in coffers, and we issued all this paper stuff. And now the paper stuff's not doing so well, so people in the know, central banks, well-heeled, 
are going by gold and silver. It's just reversal of the system. And so the people that hold the gold and silver are going to hold the wealth. It's going to be a wealth transfer from people that hold the paper to the people that hold the real asset. And so the physical sales have been really, really robust. Um, and now the public is starting to get into it a little bit. You see retail has been ticking up the last couple of years. Everybody I talk to that's in retail and wholesale says sales are ticking up. Why don't people know that, Dunnigan? They don't know because the spot price. The spot price is has been down. I mean, we reached, what was it, 2069 or something, the all-time high uh, during the pandemic? And now we're back down in the, the mid-1800s. Well, the public's looking at gold saying, well, that's not the safe haven. But if you look at what happened last year when everything else sold off, what were the only two assets that ended the year slightly up? Gold and silver. The cryptos took a bath. They're taking a bath right now on the banking news. If the cryptos were a safe haven, wouldn't they be going up? They're not. I mean, Bitcoin is getting hammered today. I own some Bitcoin assets. I'm like, shoot, I should have sold that you know, before. But it, it is what it is. It's a speculative asset. I'll be okay. I don't have that much of it. But the only thing that did well is gold and silver, and the whale hilled are buying it. But it's that spot price, that derivative. Okay, think about what we've been talking about. We've been talking about derivatives. What are derivatives? The derivatives is the gloss on top of the surface that hides what's really going on. In other words, the derivatives is the scheme. It's the scam. It's the con. And so the spot price is a con because it's based upon paper futures trading, which means nothing. Most of that has nothing to do with physical. So the physical is being bought. And if you look at supplies on COMEX and in London, the, the silver and gold supplies are doing that. It started with silver first because that's industrially used. And even though silver is more abundant in the Earth's crust, because we use it for industry use as well as investment, there's less available of it actually than gold. Gold, you know, about 20 or 30% gets used in some sort of industry. The rest is using jewelry, coins, and bars, which can be an investment. You can sell it back. And so what's happening is you're starting to see those supplies doing a why. They're going to get them. They're going to get them. And one thing that's really interesting to see is on the Chinese market, the Shanghai, they have a high delivery market. And in January, I think gold and silver were both up in the 80% physical to contract. 80%. On the COMEX, you're lucky if it's a hundredth of a percent. That COMEX is nothing but a fantasy and a dream driven by the big banks that control that market to keep the price at a certain level, to keep people from knowing what's actually going on under the system. And what you have to do is a little bit more research to figure out where are the actual physical flows going. And there's two directions. One, it's going west to east. Wealth, true wealth, is flowing west to east. And in addition, it's flowing up to the elites and away from the people and that's a big issue. We need to get gold and silver in the hands of the people because it's a great equalizer. The bonds and the dollar aren't going to be there. This is the end of that system. It's over. This, this iteration of the matrix is ending. And the only way out of that matrix, your light to get out, your savior is going to be the precious metals because it always has been. And the central banks are buying it. They know it. And that's why. There's so much more that we could expand on this. We are out of time, but very grateful for your visiting here, Rob, again on Liberty and Finance. Folks, if you don't want to miss a single episode with Rob, make sure you go to libertyandfinance.com. Put in your name, your email address, click submit. Make sure you uh, confirm on the confirming email, and then you're in. One email a day in your inbox. You'll get every uh, interview with our guests, which include Rob and, and all the other guests that we have here, as well as our weekly specials. And Rob, how do people find you online? Yeah, very simple. Go to goldsilverpros.com and you can find us on popular social media under the same name, Gold Silver Pros. Well, as always, Rob, thanks for joining us here on Liberty and Finance. Thank you, Danica. It was a pleasure. Miles Franklin Precious Metals is one of America's oldest and most trusted bullion dealers. Miles Franklin is A-plus rated and accredited by the Better Business Bureau, licensed and bonded, and has zero complaints ever registered. 
Here at Liberty and Finance, we are licensed brokers with Miles Franklin. To order, simply call us, discuss your needs, and we can let you know our live inventory, prices, and availability, and lock in your order over the phone. Once your order is locked, the price is held for you regardless of market fluctuations, and the metals are reserved for you awaiting your settled payment. Within one business day of ordering, you will receive an email invoice detailing the order and payment instructions. Miles Franklin accepts payments by bank wire, ACH or electronic check, money order, check mailed priority mail, and cryptocurrency. The fastest forms of payment are bank wire and cryptocurrency. Upon settled payment, metals will ship out within three to five business days. You will receive tracking information via email. Domestic shipping charges are $15 for any order under 500 ounces of silver or 10 ounces of gold. For orders larger than that, domestic shipping is free. The package will be boxed, fully insured, and labeled discreetly, with no indication of the contents inside. For your privacy, the name Miles Franklin will not even be on the package. To talk to myself, Kaiser, my brother Elijah, or my father Dunnigan, call 1-888-81-LIBERTY. That's 1-888-815-4237.